Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome to this week's interview. If you're here for the first time or the 30th time, I'm glad you're here. I'd love to get some feedback from you on the interviews, and you can do that by going to the podcast platform you use to listen and leave a rating and a comment. That would be greatly appreciated. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and my faithful supporters via Patreon. If you're interested in getting a new single bag or multiple horn bag, or even a mouthpiece pouch, you should check out Messina Covers. David and Erica deliver both exceptional customer service and a superior quality product. They do custom orders as well, and in some really cool color options. Be sure to check them out at messinacovers.net. That's M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S dot net. The Eastman Music Company history may be short compared to some in the industry, but what's impressive is that they've risen to the level of other trusted brands. What you'll find at Eastman is a commitment to excellence and innovation. Eastman Winds have created a line of brass instruments that are becoming commonplace in top orchestras and used by respected artists worldwide. I've been playing the 825 SB flat trumpet since 2013, and I've added since the ECN 422 Shepherd's Crook B flat cornet and the EFG 512 flugelhorn. Eastman also does a great job of recognizing great instruments and designers and knows that it makes great business sense to bring those companies under the umbrella of Eastman rather than to try to start from scratch. Such is the case with SE Shires. Eastman's acquisition of Shires has ensured that the quality and innovation of the Shires instruments continues. Alongside my Eastman instruments, I also play the Shires B-flat CVLA XL trumpet and the Shires number no. 5C trumpet. I'm both fortunate and grateful to be associated with Eastman and to be a dual artist for Eastman and Shires. Please visit EastmanWinds.com and SEShires.com. One last item before we get to today's interview. If you would like to contribute financially to this podcast and support the continued delivery of access to great artists, you can do so starting out as little as $3 per month. There are five tiers of support offered, and there are some cool benefits available to you if you become a subscriber at Patreon. You can see all tiers and benefits by visiting patreon.com slash studio HFL, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, thank you for being here, and now, on with today's interview. Phil Snedeker, welcome to uh, my podcast, Studio HFL. Glad you're here. Thank, thanks for having me. I did my homework, Higher, Faster, Louder. They're very good. <laughs> I, I, unlike, <clears throat> unlike Jeff Kernow that didn't know what the hell that was, I do. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I, I've even interviewed a couple of low brass players now who got it right away. <laughs> you know, so... So what I was going to say, you know, we were trying to do the video portion of this, is we actually met at an audition, and I don't remember how many years ago. This was, I think, a Virginia Symphony audition, and uh, we both played in the same round and both went to lunch. uh, We went to lunch together. Now, I know you you know an awful lot of people. uh, You wouldn't remember that, but I did. I I don't think either of us won that job, (laughs) unfortunately, but... Uh, well, I'm 100% positive I didn't win that job because yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't go there. So. But, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of auditions in our lives, Larry, and and, and, and that was one of them, right? That was one but, of them, uh, yeah. But the, the funny thing about auditions is you just got to keep going, right? Yeah, you know, I've actually kept track uh, 45, I think, which is not a lot, you know, compared to what some people do. But that's... I have not kept track. I, I'm, I'm <clears> of course, 
not doing them anymore. But I, I, if if I had to think about all the ones I did, oh my god, right, <laughs> right. But you know, I mean, people with big jobs, you know, have have done many, and you know, you know, in the hundreds. I think Tom Hooten one time said he'd done almost a hundred. Yeah. So. Well, you know, maybe he'll go pro someday too. <laughs> he might he might add up to something, right? But, there you go. That's right. So the only, uh, the only time you lose is the one you when you give up. That's the only time you lose. Yeah, and you know, my wife didn't like it either when I you know I'd come home from an audition not having won or even advanced many times, and and she say, "Well, now what?" And I said, "Well, you know, at least I learned something from the process." And she, you know, all the stress that it puts her through. You know, when when I'm working on an audition, she's like. I'm not sure if that's worth it. <laughs> you know, what did, what exactly did you learn? But every one of those, right, was a learning process. Uh, I think. Sure. I mean, I, I disagree with that because I think you learn something from everything, oh, yeah. uh, if, if, if only what not to do. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> right, yeah, sure. So, so, and I think that's with everything. Everything's a success or a failure, but if it's, it's only a complete failure if you don't learn anything from it. Yeah, or, or if you just, if you stop there, if, you know, if, right. if that's it. What I usually do is try to start with where you are, what you're doing at the moment. Um, just let us know um, what's going on in the trumpet world where you are these days. Yeah, sure. So I'm right outside of Hartford, Connecticut. I teach the Hart School, uh, which is part of the University of Hartford. And mm-hmm. we just finished up yesterday with our, our semester uh, online, like everybody else in the world. Right. And uh, we've actually been find, finding new and interesting ways to learn the trumpet in this crazy world but uh when when life is normal i have uh you know between uh 12 and 15 students in a small studio in in a in a really great situation where we have a lot of supportive faculty and Mm -hmm. it's a great part of the world to to learn we're uh two hours from boston two hours from new york Mm -hmm. and uh i they they treat me pretty well here and and i'm pretty happy so Mm -hmm. uh in, in addition to what I'm doing teaching-wise. I've been fortunate enough to play a fair amount with Boston Symphony as an extra these days, and I I've been doing things like going off and playing, you know, guest principal for uh, Louisville Orchestra, mm-hmm. and then you know going and doing my things in D.C. and mm-hmm. Pittsburgh and places like that. So I, I <laughs> up until a few months ago, I was doing quite a lot of play. Yeah, well, we all were, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and then it came to a screeching halt. So, how long have you been at the Hart School? This is my fourth year. I just completed my fourth year. Mm-hmm, yeah, terrific. Is that a tenure track or adjunct? Yes, yes. And I will, so I came in as associate. I will go up for tenured and full in two years. Uh, so <laughs> cross your fingers that we're all still around. You know, I shared a studio with somebody who was going through the tenure process, and I was watching him put these giant binders together. And I'm like, do you really need all that information? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, you know, you it, it the, what you have to document is insane, right? Uh, well, and, and the interesting thing is, first of all, I just went through a mid course review, which is basically your midpoint in your process, and and they kind of see how you're doing, and and I got you know some very positive uh, you know comments about mm-hmm. you know what I've put together. Uh, most of it's digital these days, but yes, they want to see everything you're doing, and they want to. You have to present it to people who are not musicians and show them mm-hmm. why what you do in the music world is important. Yeah, and and I find and, it interesting too that you know there are non musicians on these these committees, these tenure committees, and 
And, you know, my, my colleague was explaining, you have to go into such detail to get them to understand, you know, the, the musical equivalent to what the PhD candidate is doing. Right. Exactly. And, and so, you, but, but, you know, that, that's, a, I don't think it's a bad thing because I think that's what we have to do in the real world to be relevant to our, our audience in general. Mm-hmm. Like, like are, are we just playing for other musicians? No, we're playing for the general public. And so mm-hmm. we have to give them something that they're going to be able to understand on their terms, mm-hmm. not just, you know, other musicians. Mm-hmm. And so what I try, I, I try to stay away from, you know, the, the whole, the, there's there's so many forums like on Facebook and on the, these these trumpet player communities where we're just playing for each other, and I just came across another one the other day uh, mm-hmm. called I don't know Bud not Corona yeah. play for each other <laughs> blah blah right. blah and I was like right. what the hell is this these are these are trumpet and, and I don't want to criticize them because they're 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 putting out stuff and trying to to stay relevant but they're staying relevant to each other which I think is the opposite way we need to go. We need to mm-hmm. stay relevant to the rest of the world, not just to each other, because mm-hmm. we're always going to be relevant to each other. I mean, there's always going to be an ITG conference where people sit around and try mouthpieces and try to play as high as they can. But nobody really cares about that other than other trumpet players. The, 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 the people that really we're after are the people who are sitting at home going, wow, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hurting here in some way, shape, or form, and... Mm-hmm. And they need the escape that music provides. So how can we speak to them? It's, it's all a challenge. But so, so, so when I put together my dossier for tenure, I'm just thinking, how can I be relevant to these people in the business mm-hmm. school and the nursing school and et cetera? I was just going to say, you know, we look at uh, the, the fact that gigs have fallen off our calendar, but, you know, the void is also there for our audience, right? There, there are no events for them to come to. There are no events for them to... Um, go out and dine and then come and enjoy a concert. Yeah, I think we still absolutely have to still reach out to to those people. And, uh, you know, one of the things I see with all these videos going out on YouTube and Facebook is, well, I'll ask you, does it concern you that we're giving away so much content for free? You know, it actually doesn't concern me. It terrifies <clears throat> me because I think that, that, that what's going to happen is that people are going to get so used to seeing this mm-hmm. stuff for free that they're just going to expect it, and it's going to go the way that Apple Music made uh, made CDs. Like CDs became obsolete because right. Apple decided they wanted to give their content away for ten dollars an album, which didn't sound too bad at the time. It's like, right. oh well, instead of getting fifteen or twenty dollars for an album, I'm going to get ten dollars. Okay, fine, and which you know to us means that we get like five dollars an album. Right. It's like, well, okay, and so they pr- strong armed everybody in the whole universe into buying into this. And then <laughs> Spotify came along and completely just screwed everybody. Mm. And, and now nobody sells any music. Uh, that, you know, nobody sells CDs. Nobody really – all of our stuff is up on YouTube for free, period. And so you do a recording, and I tell people, think of it as an advertising cost. You're never going to make your money back, but you're going to be out there in the world, and people are going to come see your live concerts because they've seen you on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, so 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 now we've got all this online content. And people are busting their butts to put to put that up, and and it's almost saturated with it. But the the good stuff's still being watched. Mm-hmm. But then now people are being like, oh wow, you know the Berlin Philharmonic, they sound really good. Mm-hmm. Digital concert hall, that sound that sounds really good to me. I I don't need to go to a concert anymore. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I hope that's not the case, but I'm hope you know. We'll see where this leads us. 
Well, I, I think it certainly will change expectations, right, for what uh, what the public's going to uh, start to return to putting out money for certain things. And, you know, I don't think anybody uh, in their right mind would argue that the digital experience is a substitute the real deal. I think you're still going to have all your true dedicated patrons gonna, that are going to show up. The development of all these orchestras, they're always working to, to get the millennials and these other generations in. I think that's where we're going to suffer is, right. is with those audiences for sure. So, well, we just have to convince them that there's something more valuable in a live concert experience. And I think we can still do that. But we're just going to have to work harder to do it. Yeah. And, and maybe after this whole thing, people will be more hungry for the real experience. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say uh, one of the things that I think uh, is a benefit of this, and and uh, you're involved in this conversation right here. I, I watched you a week ago with Ryan Dark hosting a, an online masterclass, and yep. that was terrific. By the way, oh, I, absolutely uh, terrific. And I just I sat in the background and listened, and you know, I didn't raise my hand, didn't ask a question. I just enjoyed, took everything in. But uh, what I'm getting to is that particular format for universities. You know, now we look at, hey, this is not a bad way to bring somebody in easily. And again, it doesn't substitute for bringing you to campus. Uh, I think we can get access, you know, for master classes uh, through Zoom and other formats a lot more easily now. Yeah, I, I have two comments on that, though. And that is uh, the, the Zoom experience, I, I, I don't know about how many students you've been teaching online these days, but I just, I feel like it's such a poor substitute for the real thing. And, and in a masterclass situation, there, there's so much more I can demonstrate and, and really get my point across in, in mm-hmm. person than, I mean, it's possible. Is it possible? Yeah, anything's possible. But I also think that the students don't like it. They sit in their, their house oh. and they're, and they're <laughs> like texting their friends and they're, you know, they're, they're not really there. Yeah. Like, like yeah. some of them were, and there were a lot of people there, but I just think that you, you, you don't get people fully present on the zoom format. Mm-hmm. That's my comment. Well, and no, so, no, I, I agree. I agree. And I guess what I'm getting at is, boy, I may have to edit all of this back out now, but <laughs> uh, not, not that I'm going to replace having people on campus. It just is, gives us more opportunity, uh, you know, to bring more people in. Right. And I agree with that, of course. I mean, let, let's say you want to have Doc Severinsen in, and he doesn't feel like traveling to uh, Indianapolis. Uh, he, he, mm-hmm. you can have Doc in on a Zoom thing, yeah. and 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 you can have people like that. So, and that that's a big plus. And so, certainly, sure. we've discovered this this new format that that makes makes their connection more possible mm-hmm. uh, through geographic challenges. Mm-hmm. So I can call up Tony Plogue, and instead of having Tony Plogue fly to me, I can have him in Freiburg. If, that, if that's yeah. your point, then that's, that's, that's certainly well taken. That's exactly uh, what I'm getting at. Uh, you know, Boston to Indianapolis is not a not a bad little flight. I mean, you could be here. <laughs> it could be here pretty quick. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, some more teaching and master classes. Aside from the Hart School, are you doing... Uh, do you do a lot of guest master classes? Do you have some uh, students outside of Hart? Uh Two questions. The first question is the outside masterclasses. Yes, I do a lot of them. I try to do them wherever I am playing. Mm-hmm. I try to reach out to some sort of organization and, and just offer up a masterclass and, mm-hmm. and uh, try to connect with as many students as I can because I think that's part of my recruiting actually is mm-hmm. making them aware of you know me in the studio and my pedagogy, which is a little different than standard, as you kind of saw in that masterclass yeah. the other day. Yeah. Uh, and so... Yes, I do that, but I don't have regular private students outside of those at heart because I, I, I you know, I, I just don't. I, I'm so busy or I was so busy flying, doing so many different things that, that uh, 
I, I try to pay attention to those guys. One of the things I liked about coming here as a full-time teacher is that I wasn't do what, doing what I call drive-by lessons anymore. I wasn't, you know, uh, flying into Peabody or George Mason and saying, okay, yeah, what did we do last week? Okay, yeah, let, that's great. Okay, let's do this. And then going off and doing a thousand different things. And then, you know, just seeing them once a week was, was never – Never what I had what Barb, when Barb and Charlie were at Eastman when I was there, and they they were really there looking out for us yeah. always. Yeah. And so even though I'm still doing a lot of playing, I'm trying to I see these guys multiple times a week, and I try to make sure they're progressing the way they need to. And if I don't, I'm like, hey, get in here, and and it doesn't matter whether it's their lesson time. I'll call them in and say, hey, <laughs> what's going on? Right. Right. And I think that's necessary. I I I think the way of the adjunct teacher is 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 not that healthy because because just because I think colleges are doing that to save money and it doesn't provide for a a studio and a, 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 a an experience for the student that's the most beneficial to them. Agreed. Boy, uh, can you put that in writing and uh, you know I'll <laughs> I'll turn it into my chair at some point. But good. Yeah. Um, are you teaching any uh, or coaching any ensembles? Any any small groups at those schools? Yeah, I, I, I do a brass repertoire class, mm-hmm. and I do uh, chamber music, which is, you know, e- either trumpet ensemble or brass quintet or brass trio or mm-hmm. things like that. So the, the brass repertoire class, when I got here, it was set up just like a one-day-a-week blow through, you know, Dvorak 8 and, and then go home. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, that's not that, – that, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I made it I made it two days a week. And the whole first semester, we basically do brass ensemble, mm-hmm. which uh, – provides us an opportunity to 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 really learn about ensemble playing and pitch and blending and sound and, mm-hmm. and performance techniques and, you know because we're doing similar repertoire every week they can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of how do we play as a brass section and then we can and then the the, the spring semester we start hitting all the big repertoire using what we've learned in the in the previous semester so right. so then we we do you know Everything from Mahler to 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 really every, every, all the repertoire, uh, mm-hmm. Bruckner, Mahler, Dvorak, Tchaikovsky, all all the all the big uh, you know heavy you know often played tunes that, and I try to really hit the ones that they're going to experience when they get called maybe as extra for the Hartford Symphony mm-hmm. or for something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like hey let's let's do Verdi Requiem and experience what the offstage trumpet parts are like to actually play right. from you know. 35 feet away and you have to anticipate the conductor. I try to give them some real world experience yeah. doing that. So. Yeah. Uh, is this just an undergraduate program or do you have masters and doctorate as well? Uh, yes, all three. So it, uh, right now I have a DMA student who's currently in the Coast Guard band, very fine player who's mm-hmm. getting his DMA with me. Uh, Bryce Call is his name, very fine player. Mm-hmm. And then I have a number of master's students, uh, really fine players. I, have, I think I have Four, five master's students right now, uh, and then uh, a bunch of undergraduates. Mm-hmm. So it's it's everything. So that that's nice. So you get to improve the uh, the experience, right? It's not all all undergrads with uh, limited experience in that group. It's nice to have uh, 
Well, and our studio is so small, it's almost a one-to-one ratio of undergrads to grad students. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the thing that I'm cultivating here is one of mentorship. So the grad students really kind of take the undergrads under their wing, mm-hmm. or, or in some cases, the undergrads take the master's students <laughs> under their wing, depending on who it is. Sure. And they all support each other, and, and it's, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. The other day, we had a virtual pizza party. Uh, because I, I, I bought them all a pizza. I had a pizza delivered to them and we sat and we just partied because oh. every year, twice a year, I have a big rib barbecue at my place. And yeah. of course we couldn't do that this year. So I, I try to get the, I try to get them in a social situation where they're, these connections are going to be existing long after people have graduated. Yeah. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Well, I, I think back not just to not just to the people I studied with, yeah, but those those people I met and you know knocked on their practice room door and interrupted them, and they've interrupted me along the way. Yeah, longtime friends, longtime colleagues through that. So this rep class that you do, of course, you you said you're working on uh, standards, but I know you do a quite uh, quite a bit of arranging. So do you ever put any of your own stuff in front of them? Oh, actually, actually most of the time it's my own stuff because uh, the, the way the brass rep class is run, you, you have to certain people have to take it for credit, but not everybody and not every semester. So usually I end up with a Frankensteinian ensemble, ensemble to where <laughs> there's, you know, maybe one horn and two trombones and euphonium and, you know, mm-hmm. trumpets. And it, it's just so, so basically I take my stuff and I, whatever is in front of me, I'll make that for that oh, ensemble. And yeah. So I have, as leader of the Washington Center of Brass for years, I have a huge amount of stuff that I've done for that ensemble, mm-hmm. uh, which is four horns, four trumpets, four trombones, tuba, and percussion. And I'll take some of that and I'll just, you know, redo it for whatever ensemble is in mm-hmm. front of me. Or, I'll, or even if it's something that's a standard piece, uh, let's say it's a, uh, a Philip Jones thing, I'll, I'll, I'll redo that. So I, I do that all the time. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm doing, you might have seen this, I'm got a seminar coming up called reimagining your ensemble and it's going to be an online uh class that start uh coming up here in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and and uh basically i'm showing people how to you know take whatever piece they want to take and with and then reimagine it for their ensemble whether it's a tuba mm-hmm. quartet or a brass trio or a full symphony orchestra i want to make them mm-hmm. have the skills to you know, redo it and make it sound right. What you've seen on YouTube these days with bassoon octets and bass clarinet sextets, you know, people taking Led Zeppelin tunes and rearranging uh, for groups like that. You know, I think there's so many possibilities and there are no excuses anymore, right? To, to say, well, I don't have an arrangement for uh, the instrumentation here. And I think this is uh, what you're doing is pretty cool. I mean, that's that's in essence what you're doing, right? Is is showing them how to take whatever they want and put it for uh... correct. I, and 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 we'll we'll in the class we're going to talk about the the copyright pitfalls because you can't actually just take whatever you want and put it for your ensemble legally. So uh, you have to you know I, you you have to kind of pay attention to you know who owns the 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 copyright on it and things like that. But mm-hmm. a lot you know as it turns out, there's a lot you can do with public domain. And, and then if you really want to do something copyrighted, you can certainly uh, get it cleared uh, mm-hmm. through whoever owns the copyright. And I can take people through how to do that. I did a show a number of years ago called the, uh, the, the a tribute to Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. And some of those tunes were in public domain and some of them weren't. And I was surprised that, you know, how, how relatively easy it was to find out who owned those copyrights mm-hmm. and Hey, how much do I owe you for arranging this? And, Right. And uh, and and you just figure it out. But 
in in the case of a bassoon ensemble, you're probably not going to pay the copyright owner to do that, and 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 so you, then you get into fair use and things like that, and right. and it's a, it, like I said, it's a it's a whole new world out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that, but I'm also going to focus on how you get whatever you want uh, to play into your ensemble. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, so I'll send you a link for that, and I think it'll be interesting because there's a lot of trumpet things out there on Zoom this summer, but there's not a lot of things like this. Yeah, finding your niche, right? That's that's the whole thing with entrepreneurialism is, is finding your niche, right? I mean, if you've got something that's uh, just enough different from somebody else, somebody's going to be interested in that. Of course, then comes the marketing aspect. You know. So you mentioned Washington Symphonic Brass. Uh, tell me a little bit about that group, how long it's been around. You founded that, right? Well, I co-founded it with Milton Stevens, who used to be the principal trombone player for the National Symphony. And uh, he he and I met when I came to D.C., and I, I was doing a lot of playing with National Symphony. And, mm-hmm. and I had just come from Chicago, and I was playing with the Millar Brass Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And they're a orchestral brass ensemble, and, and uh, that's where I knew Bruce Briney and, and, and Matt Lee and some good friends there, and, and we made a couple of recordings that really were, were, were great. And I missed having something like that to play in in D.C. So mm-hmm. Milton and I got talking and he said, well, I, you know, there's a lot of great brass players here. Why don't we start something like that? So we did. Mm-hmm. And we started by playing the Tomasi and then a few of my arrangements. And uh, what I tell people is if they want to start something, the, the, the best thing to do is just to start something and start playing. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about like, you know, raising a whole ton of money for it or starting to pay <laughs> right. people a whole lot because it's just in its infancy. So, so when something is in its infancy, you need to just start making music. Yeah. And somebody will eventually notice. And they did. So we, we played for a few, you know, small time kind of free things. And then that kind of, we started presenting ourselves and people started wanting to ta- have us on our, their series. And then pretty soon, if somebody wanted a group of brass players they didn't want just a group of brass players they wanted the washington symphonic brass mm-hmm. we had ended up branding ourselves in a very real way mm-hmm. and and that can be a brass ensemble or a, or a trio or anybody any ensemble that you can imagine you have to brand yourself and we did that mm-hmm. uh, and one of the brands was that we took music that you don't necessarily hear in brass and make it a reality in brass. So we did, our first album was the Ancient Airs for Brass, which included sure. a lot of the Respighi Ancient Airs and dances. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, we did some unusual thing. We did a thing called Dances with Brass, which included the Hinastera Estancia and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, and, and, and uh, some Bernstein things. And then we did uh, Nielsen on Brass, which included Nielsen's Third Symphony. So we did some outside-of-the-box things, and people started to notice, and you know, we, we, we grew from there. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. Uh, did you, were you doing the arrangements from the beginning? Yes. And yeah, uh, just curious, are any of those for sale? Yeah. Uh, a lot of them that I'm able to sell uh, legally, I have uh, put on my website, uh-huh. uh, com. Uh, you can go to brass music and see a number of them there. And then also uh, uh, Ed Hirschman runs a really good uh company called the art of sound music and a number of my arrangements are available on that so i have things like the brahms hungarian dance number five and actually speaking of copyright i i had done this arrangement of romeo and juliet prokofiev Mm -hmm. uh this suite and i thought oh i'm never going to get the rights to that so somebody wanted to buy it mark gould wanted to buy it i'm like mark i don't know if i can sell this to you and so i i 
call up Shermer and they're like, sure, we, we here, give us $50 and 12% of retail and here you go. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So that's on my website. Yeah. So, uh, you, yeah, but you know, there's, of course there's things like in public domain, but there's also things that, that I've got agreements with, uh, the publishers and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's all reimagined for brass mm-hmm. and, and it's amazing how much you can get, you can do, you can transfer from huge full orchestra to brass mm-hmm. ensemble. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you can do it very creatively, uh, like Minozo Brass is doing these days, you know. Right. Uh, and, of course, they take a left turn every three bars, it seems like. But, um, And I know that you guys are vastly different. I'm, I'm not comparing the two groups. I'm just thinking in terms of arranging flexibility with creativity on that. So. Well, um, well, they're they're amazing because they connect with their audience so well. And one of the things you have to do to connect with your audience is play stuff that's relatively familiar to them and that's mm-hmm. exactly what they do we, we try to do that in wsb and but but they do that great and and they they take they take you from a familiar place to a strange place and it's all a, <laughs> a, a kick in the pants yeah yeah well i think uh thomas gonch is uh, the definition of strange uh you know some of the things that they come up with and that he does yeah but, but um, that's our challenge as artists is to, to somehow connect with people from that familiar place to yeah. the, the, the the new place and, and take people along for the ride. And I think the people that are going to come out of this craziness ahead are people that are able to do that. Mm-hmm. Not just people that can play trumpet or trombone or tuba. Mm-hmm. Great. But people who can connect with their audiences. Great. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where you've played uh, over the years. And uh, you mentioned some auditions and playing with Louisville uh, Symphony. What other groups? Yeah, I spent some time as a member of the Baltimore Symphony. Uh, and and then before that, I was uh, a number of years playing in the Kennedy Center Opera House Orchestra uh, off and on, and then National Symphony. Uh, I And uh, got to know those guys really well. And, mm-hmm. and, and so most of my career after I left Chicago was centered around the D.C. Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work around there, too. I mean, not just for the, the orchestras, but I'm thinking as freelancers. Uh, well, be an awful there is. There absolutely is. And and one of the best compliments to me was that was ever paid to me was by a, a, a freelancer in town. And he said, you know, there was a lot of work when you came before you came to town, but you've created a lot of work here mm. that wasn't there before. Mm. And, and that was you know, in the back of my mind, that was one of my goals, and it was nice to hear him say that because mm-hmm. I, that's that's what I try to do. Is just, I think wherever you are, you can sit around and complain that there's not enough work, but the best thing, the best people just create their own work. They yeah. make their own rain. Uh, what about where'd you get your degrees? Who'd you study with? Right. So I went to Eastman and studied with uh, Charlie Geyer, and and at the end, my last year there, I studied with Barbara Butler because mm-hmm. uh, I did one year of my master's there and. Doug Prosser and I switched teachers at, at, for our master's degrees, which, uh, you know, ca- caused quite a, <laughs> a stir among the students. But we had both done four. He had he had done four years of Barbara, and I had oh, done four years yeah. of Charlie. So we yeah. switched. And now now they the kids at Rice get both of them all the time. In fact, I have a student, uh, James McClune, who uh, just graduated with me last year, and he's mm-hmm. with Barbara and Charlie in Rice right now, and mm-hmm. and he's getting a lot of both of them, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was at Eastman. My my colleagues at Eastman were people like Doug Prosser and Byron Stripling mm-hmm. and Jeff Beal, and it was just a really inspiring, amazing place to be at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and and then I let's see. After Eastman, I went. I did a brief stint with the Dallas Brass, 
and then I went to Chicago to uh, play in Civic and Elgin, mm-hmm. uh, Elgin Symphony, and studied with Arnold Jacobs and uh, Adolf Hirsch, and uh, did some freelancing there. And then I ended up in the D.C. area because my wife at the time was had won the Marine Band job on clarinet, and so I picked up everything I had in Chicago and we moved to, to D.C. and I. Didn't know how that was going to go, but I came at a good time uh, mm-hmm. because there, there was, I don't know, uh, I, I guess a need for somebody to just kind of do something outside of the box. And mm-hmm. so I tried to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, back to Dallas Brass for a second. Who uh, who else was in the group while you were there? Yeah, so uh, with Rudd was the other trumpet. Uh, mm-hmm. Alex Shuhan, uh, of course, Mike Levine, who ran the group, uh, Gary Carper on tuba, and... Uh, yeah, so it was a really fun group, and I learned a lot about, you know, being on tour and booking, yeah. and, and, and I learned a lot from Mike, actually, about how to interact with an audience, yeah. uh, and, and that was fun, and so I, I, think, I think his connection with an audience was, was unusual and, and really uh, was the big, one of the big successes of that group. I've got a former student that's in the Dallas Press now, uh, Buddy Deschler. Oh no and kidding! I, yeah, you know, you know, buddy. <laughs> well, I, actually, I just uh, I interviewed Deanna Swoboda the other day, and uh, of course, uh, Buddy's out at Arizona right now, right? Right. Yep. So yeah, and uh, I think from what I understood uh, about Dallas is uh, he's kind of running the marketing uh, portion of that group now. Yeah, well, he, it's still his group. He's not playing trombone anymore, but I think he actually right. still speaks, and and he's an mm-hmm. extraordinary speaker, and he actually really connects with an audience well. Oh yeah, uh, that Mike Mike yeah. does that well. So so my point is that whoever is in charge of the group, whoever funds the group, really needs to be able to do that. It doesn't yeah. matter what kind of group it is; you have to be able to connect with the audience. And one of the things I'm trying to teach my students at heart now is how to talk about in an excited way what you're doing. Because everybody's great at scrolling through Instagram and Reddit and everything <laughs> and, and watching what other people do and even maybe even promoting themselves on those. But how many people uh, in, in their 20s can talk to somebody in an excited way about their, their next project? Mm. I think there are few of them than, than maybe when I was growing up. So I'm trying to get them – when, when, and during master class, when they get up there and play a piece – I'm sorry, if you're playing Charlier 2, I want you to make me cry right before you play. I want you to mm-hmm. tell me what this piece means to you. I want you to tell me what it meant to your mother, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. just make mm-hmm. something up if you need to, but but don't don't just get up there and play a note. Connect to me as an audience member right. with your art, and that's that's where the future of our craft is it lies, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, along that line, I uh, substituted for Kathy Leach down at University of Tennessee this past semester. And uh, of course, like every other school, we had to finish online. But uh, so I had to create a, a different final for everybody. And I asked everybody to write program notes. But I said, I don't want to hear birth dates or death dates. I want you to find something really interesting. It doesn't even have to be musically related, you know, something about the composer, about the piece um, that will engage the audience, whether it's on a written note or if you deliver. Uh, deliver it from the stage before you play. And, you know, it is, it's about that connection. I think it's, it's also about tearing down that fourth wall uh, to really connect with an audience. 
Uh, I know that's kind of way off what we were talking about. No, no, it's not because I think that's where it's at. We have to, as artists, be be able to tear down those walls and connect with people and and give them something they'll remember because they're mm-hmm. not going to remember dates. You're absolutely right. They're going to remember the the, the the example I always give is, do you know who Dave Flowers was? No. Really great guy. He's played second trumpet in National Symphony, and he's mm-hmm. he's long he has passed now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he had a really great sense of humor, and when he would get up. At quintet concerts and introduce, let's say, the Renwick dance. He would, he would say, "Yeah, Wilkie Renwick. He was a lobster fisherman. And one day he's looking out and he heard this thing in five four. Of course, Wilkie Renwick absolutely was not a lobster fisherman, but he would throw <laughs> stuff like that out just on a lark, and people would remember. Oh, you know that lobster fisherman piece you did? That was really cool. And he would make shit like that up all the time. Yeah. And 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 that's what keeps the artists engaged and that's what keeps the audience engaged. So it doesn't in the, in a way and I'm going to get grief for saying this. In a way it doesn't even matter if it's true. It has to be something that people remember. Mhm. Well, I think that's where some of the genius of uh, Canadian brass, you know, I remember Chuck Dallenbach delivering some of those lines between tunes and talking about how Bach had written uh you know the 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 fugue for the tuba, you know, I mean, of course that's not true, but it's, it was funny. And you know, the audience is going to remember that. Right. I mean, I remembered that, you know, but I was right. listening different ears, but. Well, here we are at the middle of the interview. Just a reminder for you to visit Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires for access to top shelf instruments. All three businesses provide exceptional customer service and will help put the right instruments and cases into your hands. Now back to today's interview. You know, I uh, I had a group. We were we toured for about five years. Uh, did a lot of showcasing. Uh, we're doing classic rock. It was a brass quintet, but we're doing classic rock covers. Right. And one thing that I truly enjoyed about that was standing at the edge of the stage and you know, being able to look the audience in the eye. It's, it's so different from sitting in the back, right in the trumpet section, uh, right. but being able to look at them and get them to smile. And then you play and, and you know, that it heightens the enjoyment uh, of the piece you're about to play. And even if it's Charlie, a two, speaking of which, I know you've seen uh Hokan's recent. Yes. What do you think about that? I think it's spectacular. In fact, I have told my students as a summer project, since Hokan's putting one of these out a week, you need to study with Hokan every week. <laughs> you, you, and, and literally, I, so so it's funny you mention that because I said, so the first three are out, right? And mm-hmm. I said, you know what? You know, I've, I've been studying with Hokan. Mm-hmm. They're like, really? And I said, yes. I said, I put on his Shirley number one the very mm-hmm. first week and had him play four bars and I played four bars right back. <laughs> and I said, I went back and forth and I, I said, I probably owe Hokan a lot of money, but yeah. he's never going to get it because, <laughs> and, and I said, that's how I studied with Phil Smith. And that's how I studied with a lot of great players that yeah. I've never really studied with because I, I really li- intently listened to their sound and mm-hmm. their style. And, and of course, Hokan's got such a great musical sense. He reinvents these things, right? Yeah. yeah. So another project that I'm in, uh, involved in right now is uh, with Stanley Friedman. You remember him as yes. the composer of Solas? Yes. Uh, he's in Memphis right now. He has written a, an accompaniment for Charlie Two that's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, and, I've used that on a concert. Oh, okay. Well, uh, no. Well, the, it was his. 
Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know. Uh, who That's did okay. Because, that well, Tubo's piano player put out a whole set of them. And it's, it's, you can buy it for like $125 and you can mm. get all, the whole Charlet book and these piano parts. But I, I'm sorry, Stanley's is three notches above this. This mm. is, this is mm-hmm. uh, much more, the harmonies Stanley has produced here is much more in line with what I hear when I play a piece. So, so he put a thing up the other day about of him playing it years ago. And at the time he wrote it, uh, Leduc said, no, absolutely not. You're not putting that up. And so he shut it down. So I've now that Charlie is public domain, and I don't know if your listeners know this, but Charlie mm-hmm. is indeed public domain now. Yeah. Um, you can uh, you can do arrangements on it, and and so I've encouraged him to do uh, the the I call them the big five uh, Charlie A's at least to start with. Mm-hmm. So we're going to come out with five uh, through my publishing company, PAS Music, and mm-hmm. uh, and he's in the process right now of, of composing the other ones, but. Uh, why did I say that? So, so I think there's been a resurgence of interest in Charlier, not mm-hmm. only for, for you know, the Hokan really has made this a thing. And, and what do you think of Hokan's thing? It's, it's riveting, right, when you watch him play it. I will never play any of those the same way ever, ever, ever that's, again. That's exactly right. That's it's, what he's done for all of us. The phrasing is just, I heard the way he did number one. Now, number one is not the most moving etude you're going to play. But no. the way he played it, it sure was. <laughs> you know, That's was... exactly right. so. So this this brings me back to the whole connection with the audience. Like, why do we sit there and listen to that and go, "Oh my god"? And <laughs> and, and a reg- your grandmother would sit there and go, "Oh my god," because mm-hmm. of the way he presents it. Whereas most trumpet players, when they go, it's just like shoot me now, right? It's like who cares? Who cares if he can sit there? It's like you know, you had a little machine gun. Who cares? Right. But Hokan makes music out of it, and and he does it in such a way that you keep interested for the entire piece, for the entire age. Yeah. So it, <laughs> I can't. It, it was I can't brilliant. wait for the rest of these to come out. I mean, I mean, of course he's he's Hokan. He we we know he's the superstar that he is. But that's... well, have have you? Uh, my student uh, pointed out the other day that he's wearing the same thing for all three of these. So the question is, has he, did he just do all three of them? Is he, do, did he do all of them in one fell swoop and it, like in one take and then go home and we're just releasing them once a week. Um, Cause that's... I'm looking at him right now and he's got that same sweater vest on with the same <laughs> shirt and everything. And yeah. so I'm like, so not only is he playing so beautifully, but you know, maybe he just showed up one day at the hall and it's like, yeah, I'll just knock all these down. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case, you know, um, then we really hate him, right? No, then then uh, even more uh, reason to listen to him, and 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 you know, it's not just that you get to listen, but you get to watch. Right. You know, you really get to observe the posture, the breathing, and I think you can see. Uh, and, and this is a reason I like, enjoy watching Sergey play is you see the efficiency you see uh how relaxed uh he is when he plays and hokan i think yeah so then you know the the rest of these etudes this is going to be a treasure trove of videos that you know future students you know if you want to know how to play charlier well here's where you go <laughs> and here's yep. what you do so i agree because i will say again that when i listen to most trumpet players play Charlier. It's it's underwhelming. You know how, how many times have you heard these things, and it's just like, okay, those are the right notes. Um, and and we as a community have to get beyond that. If we're not beyond that, then we're in trouble. And and I so so the other thing I have to say that's 
fairly controversial, is that even though we as a trumpet playing community have gotten so good technically, like there's there's trumpet players that are just like, in general, we play rings around people 20, 30 years ago, right? I mean, yeah. obviously there were stars 20, 30 years ago, but the trumpet players, is, there, there's great trumpet players everywhere. Right. But musically, we haven't necessarily put emphasis on being complete musicians. And, and I think that's got to change. Otherwise, yeah. we're in trouble. Go a little bit more into that. What, what would you like to see? I would like to see uh, schools mandate uh, studying with maybe singers and, and at least studying mm. them or at least taking vocal courses or, or getting outside of your little trumpet box yeah. um, and, and, and learning music. M- my wife, who's a flute player, mentioned that you know uh, violinists and pianists are, are just better musicians in general because they have such great repertoire and they, mm-hmm. have, to, they have to learn you know, Mozart and Beethoven and Prokofiev. They have concertos written for them their instruments by these amazing composers and mm-hmm. and we trumpet players don't mm-hmm. and uh we have to go get that we have to go figure out why are these people phrasing this way and mm-hmm. and so one of the things we do at heart here is we uh in the chair music uh section we we make people go play with flute players and violinists and do uh, different things that 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 they normally wouldn't do like you know don't just do the brass quintet do you know go mm-hmm. go get a a flute and a viola and a piano ensemble and, and make something. And so uh, that's that's what we try to do here. I recently started a faculty ensemble with uh, Scott Mendoker, the tuba player here, mm-hmm. but also the, the viola professor, Rita Porphyris, and the violin professor, Anton Miller. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then our percussion player, Ben Toth, our percussion professor, Ben Toth. And, and we we play all kinds of stuff in this weird Frankensteinian mm-hmm. ensemble. And, and, and I learned so much playing of the viola i have to balance out of a, a viola for pete's mm-hmm. sake in this small <laughs> ensemble how hard is that but how satisfying is that to do because sure. she approaches music completely differently than mm-hmm. you know sitting next to a trombone or a horn player mm-hmm. you know this this gives me a great idea for the fall you know and i'm hoping we're all back on campus um you know at the right time but you know hoping we're back on campus but thinking I'm going to approach our our string faculty and say, "Hey, would you would you come do the trumpet master class or brass master class?" Absolutely, because uh, I think you know you're exactly right. Um, what needs to be said technically can be said in lessons, but what needs to be said musically can be done by any great musician. One of the best lessons I ever had at Eastman, and this is nothing to take away from Charlie Guy or Barbara Butler, mm-hmm. was with uh, Jan DeGaetani, who was the soprano professor there when I was mm-hmm. there. She was a, actually a really famous uh, soprano. And I was playing Let the Bright Seraphim with one of the students there. And, and I went to this this lesson that was for the the, 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 the soprano. Mm-hmm. And she it, it, come into my lesson. Okay, great. And I learned so much. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not that way. It's this <laughs> way because musically this makes much more sense. And so I started going and listening to a lot more singers. And, mm-hmm. and I think I think we need to get out of our trumpet box. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, talking about the Charlier, and of course there's there are terrific books, the Bordoni, the Charlier, Arben, St. Jacome, you name it, the Brandt, Schlossberg. Uh, but you personally have contributed some really excellent material for trumpet players over the years. And uh, I bought uh, the first one, your first Lyrical Etudes book, a number of years back. I just got the second one a couple of weeks ago. I've got your operatic etudes book, and I think uh, 
low etudes, and I, I know you've got some more out there, but um, this is this is really well written stuff, and really enjoyable to play. Well, thanks. I appreciate you uh, you you uh, buying those and playing them, and mm-hmm. and you know it's it's it, it's all about exploring music and mm-hmm. not just trumpet, and mm-hmm. so. One of the things I noticed, and getting back to the Charlier, one of the, my favorite things to play was Charlier too, because it was it had so many twists and turns that, mm-hmm. that you were like, wow, this is really fun to play. And then I realized that most A2 books had, you know, mostly technical studies mm-hmm. and not too many things like the Blazovich had a lot of really cool melodies. Yeah. And I always enjoyed those, but there weren't too many that, and you know, then you had the, the Conconi and the Bordoni, which were a little, I don't know, they were, they were a little predictable mm-hmm. and so what i wanted to do is write something in between the the conconi and let's say shirley a2 mm-hmm. which it, it, so mine are a little shorter but they have interesting twists and turns and yeah. i just people ask me how i write them and i i say i take a bike ride and i sing into my phone <laughs> <laughs> and when i first started out I, I wrote the first one in 1990 i was singing into a little voice recorder on my mm-hmm. bike and, and then i come home and transcribe it. and that's one of my favorite ones you know, I think it's it's uh, got some, you know, you can you can explore it for all the technical things in it. You know, the wide interval leaps, uh, but it's got some nice lyrical things uh, to it, and you know, and it's a great exercise in phrasing. Not just you know, not just playing the tune, but really learning some great phrasing there. Um, you know, it, so this interview really is kind of a result of me contacting you. I don't know, three or so weeks ago, and asking. Uh, your sources on all your operatic etudes and your reply right. your reply was <laughs> yeah so so i it kind of threw me for a loop because nobody had ever asked me that before and i was like oh crap that was a long time ago and I, <laughs> it, it actually caused me to pick up these things again and yeah. explore them and i was like oh man i can't remember for life me because at the <laughs> time i wrote this i was playing a lot with washington national opera and i was sitting in the pit mm-hmm. at the kennedy center listening to some of the greatest opera singers in the world mm-hmm. literally night after night now i i remember i was we were in the middle of la Rondine, and so there's like three or four tunes uh, etudes in there loosely based on on la Rondine. but uh you know you've got all kinds of, of various uh things from mozart like magic flute to mm-hmm. uh I think Turandot's in there uh, from Nessendormos from Turandot's and mm-hmm. all kinds of great things, but it's, it's only loosely based around it. So I think, I don't know if my answer was very good to you, but it was what it was. So it was well, like, I think these are mostly based yeah, on things, not yeah. taken directly from them. Well, it, it was disappointing only in that I couldn't, you know, point directly to uh, the the opera or a particular aria that had come from, but, you know, not disappointing in, in the etude itself. Um, the last one in the operatic etude book, uh, I always envisioned the Godfather. It's that, that opening, you know, I think that's the one in six flats or something like that. I I always think of the Godfather. uh, Oh, the two scenes, right. You know, it's kind of got that, that, that feel to it. So, um, but I don't think it was anywhere close to the Godfather. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think it was anywhere close. I mean, I don't think it was inspired by the Godfather, but I see now how it is closely related to it. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. again, these are, these are impressions of operatic styles. So that's mm-hmm. why I called it ages in the operatic style. It wasn't really meant to be based on any one thing, although mm-hmm. some clearly are, but uh, it just it, it, mainly, I think I say in the preface of this, mainly it's to get us out of our trumpet playing box and into artistry. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something Arnold Jacobs always used to say to me is like, be an artist. Don't be a trumpet player, be an artist. And if, and if I can write something that contributes to trumpet players getting out of their trumpet player box and mm -hmm. into artistry, that's, that's my goal. Well, I think it's a, a goal well met, you know, with, well, with thank this you. material. Um, you know, and I didn't know you as a, as a teacher and, and how you uh, approach the trumpet until I watched this master class last week. And it's like nothing I had ever experienced before. And wow. you really, uh, you really upset the apple cart with me. <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, and I'm not the, the, uh, well, I want to be careful here. I'm not the, the typical, uh, blowhard kind of trumpet player. You know, I, I've learned over the years to, uh, to be more like the singer, more like the violinist and approach it right. really musically. But uh, even your approach was so dramatically different. Uh, and, and my first teacher was, was Vince DiMartino, but I hear a lot of, of what Vinny does in, in your teaching. And well, thank you. And, and Vinny's one of my former teachers too. He did summers at Eastman and my, so oh. I, I studied with him uh, in my master's degree. And mm -hmm. so I, his approach is there uh, but, but I took a pro I, I, to put my pedagogy together for me, it, I, I took things from all my teachers mm -hmm. and, and put them into something that worked for me. And then I realized, oh, this is vastly missing from standard pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And so let me just tell your listeners what you're talking about. And that is that everything I approach on the trumpet is got one question to it. How easy can I play this? Yeah. Because I spent years fighting the trumpet. Mm -hmm. And I know what that feels like. I'm really good at it. I'm never going to lose that ability to fight the trumpet, but mm -hmm. I have to constantly remind myself to do the new thing. Arnold Jacobs used to say, you can't break an old habit. You just have to start something new. Exactly. And so my new habit now is when I, from the very first note, I think, how easy can I do this? Mm -hmm. How easy, whatever note I'm trying to play, however, whatever volume I'm trying to do, how easy can I do it? And if I keep asking myself that, my body will figure it out. Well, it sounds so easy. You well, know? <laughs> it sounds so easy, but 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 we as trumpet players are always designed to, you know, okay, I got to get stronger. And so one of the things I realized is that I'm as strong, I, I have been as strong as I will ever need to be to play the trumpet as high or as loud as I want to. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of me getting out of my own way. So strength is our weakness. And so I mentioned that I said with Uncle Jacobs, he used to say, we have to come at this from a standpoint of weakness. And I never knew what the hell that meant. I was like, hmm. what do you mean, Jake? What do, what do you mean come at it from a standpoint of weakness? A lot of my discoveries was just figuring out what Jake and Hersus and Barb and Charlie were saying all these years. Mm -hmm. And and what, Hers what Jacobs was always saying was no back pressure, no back pressure, no back pressure. And come at it from a standpoint of weakness. And so the misconception of many of Jacob's students and many trumpet players in general is that you have to blow a lot of air. And, you know, mm -hmm. to play the trumpet, you have to blow a lot of air. But when you take a huge volume of air and stick it into a little hole, you get back pressure. Mm -hmm. There's just no getting around it. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, high notes create more back pressure than low notes, but you can't, if you artificially create it, you're starting from a... A disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So if you try to even out the blow and make it as little back pressure as possible, then the back pressure that's created by the upper notes is much less and you can play them easier. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the secret of people that are quote unquote natural players. You've always, you know, you look at somebody like maybe even Hokan or, or, uh, you know, you, you name it, uh, Maurice Andre, uh, Thibault, mm-hmm. just all of our trumpet icons are, are, are heroes, Doc Severinsen. And you think, wow, they're just natural. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not natural. They just know how to do this thing better than we do. <laughs> they're not necessarily stronger. They just know how to play easier than us. And mm-hmm. in the end, they, if you're playing easier, then you can do more. <laughs> so that's my theory. And, and so I've really done a lot for my own playing with this thing and i i'm able to take people that have a lot of tension and dial them back into their potential and that's where it's at as a teacher mm-hmm. it's like how good how, how good a musician can we make this person and how can we get them to mm-hmm. get out of their own way mm-hmm. so yeah i'm thinking about this you know let's say i'm going to come and study with you and i am so far the other direction you know are you confident as a teacher that you could take just about anybody and get them to this point, or, you know, maybe that's a loaded question. You know, I, I don't want to offend <laughs> some students maybe that you didn't work with. Right. No, I, I, I've gotten everybody better at this. And I think, you, you know, I, everybody, a lot of people that come to me do have this issue and, and they watch my, I've got a little series called got two minutes on YouTube and, mm-hmm. and I explain a lot of this stuff. And so they see it and they end up on my doorstep because they're like, you know, I've been mm-hmm. struggling with this for years and you seem to be teaching this. So, mm-hmm. The answer is the only limitation of that is that some people have more trouble getting out of their own way than others. <laughs> and if they're, if they're too ingrained in it, it just takes longer, but yeah. it's always possible. Yeah. And if the desire's there, they're going to eventually do it. Um, I think all of my students to a certain degree, it, well, I actually say, say this with a grain of salt. I, I say some, some students, a lot of students, you know, usually, are delivering the air in too forceful way, but some people don't do it enough. So, so I call it a balance. You have to balance out the trumpet, and I call it, I call the the balance into the trumpet 35 miles an hour. So a lot of trumpet players they go from eight miles an hour to 80 miles an hour, and they they play low notes at eight miles an hour, and they try to play high notes at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And I try to get them to blow 35 miles an hour into the horn all the way across the board, and that evens out their their blow Mm -hmm. and and then they can start doing more and so if they can get that one thing good soon then Mm -hmm. then there's no limits to what they do so but some of them are so used to you know and and i say if you talk like you play these people that go 8 to 80 miles an hour they would be talking like this because they're (laughs) uh, uh, it sounds like this right and right but when we talk we go high low loud and soft and we're giving 35 miles an hour when we speak. And that's exactly what mm-hmm. we should do when we play the term. Mm-hmm. You know, Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I have a great time doing these interviews. And it's not just from a – I mean, it started out really kind of as, as a selfish thing, wanting wanting to talk to people. Um, but at the same time, you know, wanting to share. And, and that's been the best thing is, is sharing all this stuff. But from almost from person to person to person – that I've talked to, uh, it's if if we could truly understand to play like you talk, play like you sing, uh, and not just from an articulation standpoint, but just the ease of of this. You know, we become less. Uh, Peter Bond used a word, uh, you know, less histrionic in in our approach. You know, we don't do this over overkill to make things happen. It's and and people have told this forever. You know, you should play more like a singer. 
but then they right, te- but what does that mean to you in reality? Yeah, but then they teach us uh, to breathe, you know, and, and nothing against the breathing gym, but you know, that's that's really not the way to breathe when you play the trumpet. I completely agree. I, I think you know. Look, I I know those guys, and and I was I was a good friend of Pat. Uh, I still am good friends with Pat Sheridan, and then mm-hmm. uh, you Sam, know yeah. Sam Palafian, love him to death, and, and and I think those techniques work better for lower instruments. You mm-hmm. do have to move more air on the tuba. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, you just do. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're. <laughs> I was I was on. Uh, Andy hits uh, podcast the other oh, yeah. day, and I, I said, I said, yes, we play small hold instruments, and you guys are big holders. So we, we were having fun with that. Yeah, it's like look at your hole and see what you're blowing into, and and figure out what you need to do to do the the equivalent of 35 miles an hour on your instrument, which creates minimal back pressure, which mm-hmm. is what Jacobs mm-hmm. was always talking about. No back pressure. I, I've got notes from my lessons with Jacobs, and I can't tell you how many times I, I wrote down no back pressure. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the hell that meant really mm-hmm. to me then. I just knew that it had to do with the air, and, and I thought to do no back pressure, I use more air, right? No. Right. For the trumpet, you use consistent air and and even air and, mm-hmm. and, and, and try to even out the blow. So, And, and even between – Fuglehorn and piccolo trumpet to take two extremes. You have to, you have to adjust that thirty-five miles an hour, right? Like yeah. you can't blow into the flugelhorn the same way you blow into the piccolo trumpet. So I actually have each of my students sigh into their horn before they play. If when when they're when they're changing horns, even mm-hmm. from B flat to C, I make sure they know where the resistance point of the horn is. So you sigh into the horn to see where yeah. that horn's backing up at you, and you just blow to that point, and that's it. Yeah, and and in fact, I think you called it a blow blow point. Right, is the that, blow point, right? Yeah, and I think uh, that's one of those big things that I came away from that uh, masterclass with was, you know, and and I've learned over the years how to play piccolo trumpet more efficiently. But I, man, I wish I had known this twenty or thirty years ago, uh, because it Me is, too. you know, the B flat and, and even the difference between the B flat and the C, right? right. It's going to be substantial enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, all of that I thought was just pure gold uh, that you had to offer. So, um, thank you. I'm glad you got something out of it. So just give me your address, and I'll show up at your doorstep for a lesson tomorrow. You know, just... <laughs> <laughs> you, as long as you bring the beer, we're good with that. Okay, okay. Uh, Corona, and listen, I'm want... just—I I would just be happy if anybody showed up at my doorstep right now, so I could just <laughs> give them a big hug and have a beer with them. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, do you want Corona? Uh, is that a, an acceptable beer? <laughs> And, in a pinch. And I tell you what, and I'm not knocking this. I was only doing that for comedic effect. You know, I, I'm not uh, I'm not blaming uh, Corona for anything these days. So, um, well, I tell you what, this, is, uh, this has been exactly what I hoped for uh, from you. It's, uh, you know, somebody who's really made a, a great name for themselves in the trumpet world and uh, is giving back. Um, yeah, so thanks for all you've been doing for uh, for everybody these days, putting out more content. You know, this new book, I haven't played all the way through it yet because um, I'm trying to take my time. And by the way, very creative. It's so different from that first lyric uh, etudes book. Um, well, thanks. Now, are you talking about the orchestral etudes or the volume two? Volume two. Okay. So so that's actually a couple of years old. The newest one I wrote at the beginning of the coronavirus, it's called Lyrical Orchestral Trumpet. And Well, dang it. Um, now i got to buy that one, too. <laughs> No, I'll send it to you. It's it's got 
things from all the standard repertoire of, of, of lyric things we have to play, like Don Juan and yeah. the lyrical solo from Mahler 5 and yeah. Outdoor Overture and all that stuff, but I write a whole etude on it. A lot of the things up on YouTube that I'm doing these days is playing some of that, and yeah. um, there are enough different to where we can take these things and reimagine them, because I think what happens is people play excerpts, and there's so much emotional baggage with you know, these things that we've played for years and we're like, oh, shit, I remember this audition. I screwed this up and right. now I got to play it again. And, you know, the, the high A skip and the Mahler lyrical solo, shit, I know I'm going to screw that up. And so I basically I, I, I try to demystify that and try to pe have people approach it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it can help them reimagine this in a in a in a way that a singer would as opposed to a trumpet player. Yeah. You talk about emotional baggage. You know, every week when I meet with my therapist, uh, Petrushka is is the first. There thing you I go. <laughs> there you go. Petrushka has yeah. been the downfall of more of oh my many gosh. a great trumpet player. <laughs> so, well, and it's not even that hard. It's just it's it's got some thing associated with it. So my wife, who's a violinist, she goes, "Why are you getting so worked up? It's just a pit solo." You know, <laughs> that's exactly that's right. Exactly what it is. You know, That's why so, you need the, the non-trumpet player perspective. Exactly. Because you ask a violinist, <laughs> and it's like, just play it. Right. Just play it. So, Well, hey, thanks again for the time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Larry. I appreciate it. Well, here we are at the end of today's interview. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll come back for more. I'd also like to thank again the sponsors of this podcast, Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and S.E. Shires. Their support helps me to continue to deliver these interviews on a regular basis. Be sure to check out their products at MessinaCovers.net, EastmanWinds.com, and SESHires.com. And one final reminder that you too can be a supporter of this podcast by subscribing at Patreon.com slash StudioHFL. Thanks again. Now go practice. <laughs> <laughs>